If it makes you feel any better, I don't feel nearly as bad as I sound. Um, and if it makes you feel better, I don't feel, feel nearly as bad as I look. Um, so, so that puts me at least among the living. Uh, but the, the voice is the last thing to come back. It just so happens that it's very necessary for this task. So we will trust God's provision. Last time we uh, were led very well through Romans 1, 9 through 17 uh, by Brother Richard. And, and uh, now I'm going to have us go back and look at verse 16 and 17, though you're going to wonder if this is a sermon on Romans or a sermon on Habakkuk um, when we are done. And the answer to that will be yes. Um, so let me read for us. Uh, out of Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 16 and 17. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's go to the Lord and ask for help. Father, uh, we need you every time we open up your word. I certainly need you every time have the task to preach. A weak voice reminds me of that this morning. But Father, I pray that it will be clearly communicated from Your Word that as Christians, we are a needy people. We are people who cannot do this on our own. And it is that very admission that brings us to the cross of Christ. It is that very admission that is the fuel by which we live. It is that which helps us to hold on to Christ. So the tough times, the sufferings, the failures, these are reminders of who we are in Christ. It is not I. It is not us. It is Christ who gives life. I pray that Your Spirit, by Your Word, would show us that this morning and Christ would be exalted. Amen. Um, I'm guessing that most of you, like me, you like movies whereby the central characters overcome some struggle um, and by the end of it they are able to complete some major task some examples might be Hoosers, or Rudy, or the Mighty Ducks, or Rocky, maybe Born Identity, maybe that great classic Dodgeball, or the many others. Um, we like to see someone get it together and prevail. I amaze myself as I rewatch those movies for the second or third or sometimes more times than that. I find myself on the edge of my seat 
again in hopes that by the end they're going to win. We like movies that show folks who work hard and then are able to make a transformation and pull it out and win. How lame would it be if those movies ended differently? Can you imagine how disappointed we would be if at the end of Hoosers, when they walked into that big arena right before the state championship, and the whole team turned to the coach and said, yeah, we can't do this. It's not us. You got to go get another team to do it. And the game, or the movie ends with the Hoosers on the sideline watching as another team wins the state championship on their behalf. I don't think we'd like it. Or imagine if at the end of Rudy, the crowd is crying, Rudy, Rudy, right? Rudy turns to the coach and says, nah, seriously, I got, I, you don't want me in there. Do not let me go in there. So some other guy goes in for Rudy and tackles the quarterback and Rudy carries that guy off on his shoulders. It just would not have the same ending, would it? Well, we might not like that ending, but I want to argue that the Christian experience fits those endings a lot closer than the original stories. It's my hope as we turn our attention to Romans 1 this morning that we'll be challenged to consider how seriously do we believe in the humbling reality of the Christian gospel. Last time we were in Romans, Brother Richard preached for us from Romans 1, 9-17, and he clearly demonstrated for us the central point of his sermon, and that is God, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So again, let's read it together. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In verse 17, Richard pointed out to us last time that Paul is actually borrowing. He's, he's quoting from the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. So, one of the questions I want us to ask this morning is why? Why did Paul borrow from Habakkuk? Why doesn't he just say this at the end of 17? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as the just shall live by faith. Why does he include a quote from Habakkuk? Why does he include a reference to Habakkuk? And hopefully by asking that question, it'll be profitable. Habakkuk is written just a little bit after Isaiah. The circumstances surrounding Isaiah match closely to that of Habakkuk. So we just finished going through Habakkuk. I mean, Isaiah. Judah was continuing to walk in rebellion against God, and God had warned them, if you continue to do this, you're soon going to be judged for your rebellion. Like Isaiah, Habakkuk is written shortly before the Babylonians would come and destroy the nation of Judah. Habakkuk is a really interesting book. Growing up here in Winston-Salem as a kid, I always thought it was Tabakkuk. Um, but it's not. It is Habakkuk. Um, 
while, while it's only got three chapters in length, it, it proves to be very readable. It offers to you a very clear problem, a response, and a conclusion. If you know much about the prophets, you do not normally get that. Unlike the other prophets they, who spend most of their time offering warnings and encouragement, commands the people of God, Habakkuk never once through the entire book addresses the people of God. Instead, and this is what makes it so interesting, it's a conversation between the very zealous Habakkuk and God. God reveals to his plans to Habakkuk, and at first it troubles our poor friend the prophet. It bewilders our friend. So the book opens with a question. Eh, maybe we should call it a complaint offered by Habakkuk. So Habakkuk chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at the wrong destruction and violence are before me? Strife and contention arise. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Writing from the nation of Judah somewhere in the late 600 B.C.s, Habakkuk looks around him and he's appalled. He's appalled at the sin and he's appalled at the wickedness. And according to verse 2, because Habakkuk says, how long must I cry this? We can infer that Habakkuk has actually spent a lot of time in prayer to God, bewildered by the wickedness he saw around him. It frustrates him. After quite a lot of time of offers to complaint to God and seeing no action, he now is tired of God not responding. So he goes before the Lord and he asks this question, How much longer will you allow this to happen? Well, Habakkuk sees the wickedness around him. He begs God to do something about it. And we find out that God agrees with Habakkuk's assessment of the wickedness of the people. But the way God decides to handle it does not agree with Habakkuk. Look at God's response. Chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. This is God speaking to Habakkuk. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Here, and this is just part of that section, God responds to Habakkuk that he will answer the problem of Judah's wickedness by using the wicked Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to destroy Judah and remove them from their land. God is in by no means in denial concerning the character of the Babylonians as he goes on to describe them as arrogant, ruthless, and vicious. Still, God is going to use them to judge Judah's wickedness. So Habakkuk says, how long are you going to let this wickedness go on? God responds and says, oh, don't worry. I am going to utterly take care of it. I'm bringing the Babylonians to destroy you all. Okay, (laughs) 
Sometimes you get a little bit more than what you ask for. Now we turn to the central problem of Habakkuk. We might call it the horror of Habakkuk. Habakkuk responds to God with a question succinctly stated in verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk believes in the holiness of God. He knows that God can't tolerate wickedness. But how can God allow the very wicked Babylonians to swallow up the less wicked people of Judah? That is, how can God allow ruthless folks to wreak havoc on slightly less righteous folks? But those slightly unrighteous are God's own children. Yes, the people of God are acting wickedly, admits Habakkuk. But why would God allow the even more wicked Babylonians to prevail? How could God allow a Gentile nation to sack the Jewish nation? God offers a reply to Habakkuk. We find it uh, in chapter 2, and we also find the verse that is quoted in Romans 1.17 within this section. Here's God's response. So keep in mind that what we are going to find quoted in Romans 1.17 is Habakkuk 2.4. Keep in mind that is God speaking, replying to Habakkuk's complaint about why he would use the Babylonians to take care of Judah. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. That's not an iPad. It's a little bit different tablet. Um, so he may run who reads it. I don't know about you, but that's not usually what you want to write down. Or at least you don't want that to be the response to most of your writing. Why are you writing that? I just want to write it down so whoever reads it runs. Um, that was what Habakkuk was told. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So Habakkuk's hoping that he's going to get a response on the lines of, oh, you know what? Kind of right there, Habakkuk. I didn't really think that one out. You got wicked, and then you got, that's the Babylonians, and you got you all, y'all are, you know, slightly less wicked. I probably shouldn't have the wicked knocking out the slightly less wicked. It should probably be the other way around. Instead, God responds and says, no, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to write down what I said because I want it to be so clear that whoever hears it runs. And just in case at some point you all think that I'm not going to do it, I want you to know right now I will not lie. You can wait on it. It is coming. And then we get Habakkuk 2.4, which is what is quoted in Romans 1.17. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Now he's talking here about the Babylonians. Maybe even in particular their king. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. 
In verse 4, we get a comparison between the Babylonians who are used as mere tools and those who are counted as righteous. There's a comparison. He says, The Babylonians have a soul that's puffed up and not upright. They are arrogant and self-dependent. They see no need for God and, no, and have no problem with their wickedness. And on the other hand, the righteous, they live by faith. So contrast two approaches. On one hand is the approach of the Babylonians, self-dependent and unconcerned with the ways of God. On the other hand is the approach of living by faith. On the face of it, that might not mean much to us. I got a lot of help here from a guy by the name of John Calvin. He wrote this about 500 years ago on Habakkuk. Talking about this verse, he said, Habakkuk, I have no doubt, places faith in opposition to all those defenses or supports by which men blind themselves as to neglect God and see no aid for Him. As men therefore rely on what the earth affords, depending on their own erroneous supports, Habakkuk ascribes life only to faith, but faith depends on God alone. So God is answering Habakkuk's complaint and offering him a way to live. As to how he answers to the complaint, he says it seems wrong that God would allow these wicked, or how he answers the complaint as to how it's okay for God to allow the wicked Babylonians to triumph. God responds that their arrogance, their self-dependency, is actually the very way that God will use to judge them. He'll destroy them. On the other hand, those who recognize their complete need for God and rely on God for His mercy, they are the ones who live by faith. They will gain salvation. Okay, where does that put our friend Habakkuk? His poem is still valid, right? It's still the case as God plans to use the wicked Gentiles to destroy God's people, the Jews. How does God's response help Habakkuk? Well, in one sense, it doesn't. But it does help him change his outlook. What do I mean by that? Well, it helps him to more clearly see the situation of the people and the standards of God. I think you can see this by asking this question. What is it that Habakkuk actually wanted God to do? What is it that he actually wanted God to do? I mean, first Habakkuk was upset that God was not punishing Judah. And then he's upset for God over-punishing Judah, right? It's exactly what's going on. So what did he really want? Well, I think what he really wanted was, and what we can only presume he wanted, was a national cleanup. He wanted a cleanup, but he wanted it to be an in-house project. He wanted God to persuade the wicked to stop their wickedness, and he wanted the people to get their act together. That's what he wanted. But God is revealing to Habakkuk that is not possible because the nation does not have the resources on their own to be cleaned up, to be made right. Instead, God alone 
is the only one who can solve their problems. And if Habakkuk is going to respond rightly, he will respond with faith. And that means he will recognize the nation's inability to save themselves and will turn to God with full abandon and trust, even if it means being humiliated by the Babylonians. God continues to explain throughout the rest of chapter 2 that the Babylonians will get their own. In very, very stark details, we learn that. In chapter 3, we see a beautiful example of faith displayed by Habakkuk. We see a different Habakkuk. Verse 2 of chapter 3. O Lord, I've heard the report of You. and Your work, O Lord, I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Jump down to verse 17. Some of the most beautiful words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk places himself and his people squarely dependent upon the mercy of God. Instead of questioning God's right to punish in a certain way, he is changed to trust that God would be willing to show mercy instead of wrath. And just as importantly, God has placed his tr- Habakkuk has placed his trust in God's provision. What incredible words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, though the fruit, there be no fruit on the vines, the produce of the olives fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stall. That is a desperate man. And what does he respond? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. He says, the Lord will be my strength when I have no access to provision on my own. So why does Paul use this verse? Why does Paul use Habakkuk. I believe if anyone could relate to Habakkuk, it would be Saul of Tarsus. Recall that Paul was once famously known as Saul of Tarsus. He was not simply a Jew. He was a self-proclaimed Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee, born of a Pharisee. He was zealous that the laws and the traditions be honored, and he was willing to punish anybody who dared change it. As Saul of Tarsus He believed he was going about the work of God. He was keeping and upholding the law. He was helping to make the people stronger and better. He was after an in-house renovation project. Saul, like the other Pharisees, lived and breathed two fundamental principles. One, he had the opportunity to be right with God by the merit of his Jewish birth. And two, he could be declared righteous by God through works of the law. 
That's what he lived by. Those happen to be the exact opposite of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Jesus Christ denies that men can be right with God by merit of birth or any other human virtue. And it affirms that we can only be right with God by God's grace. The Gospel of Jesus Christ denies that men can be declared righteous by God through law-keeping and affirms that men can only be declared righteous by God through faith. We are not privileged to know what went on internally as Paul was converted, but we can be assured that there were some Habakkuk moments of horror. There had to be moments where Paul had to be flabbergasted as to the fact that there was no way, there is no way he could do enough to fix his problem of sin. There had to be moments where he was blown away that God would use Gentiles to accomplish his kingdom purpose. And there are certainly moments where he looked at all that he once held dear and he said something on the lines of, Though the fig tree does not blossom, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. If anyone could relate to Habakkuk's surrender to faith, it would be Paul. Like Habakkuk, he found himself before God, utterly dependent upon God's grace and mercy. And this leads us to another man who was left horrified before God. A man by the name of Martin Luther. He was a Catholic priest in the 1500s. From all accounts, Luther was incredibly bright. In fact, most folks call him a genius. But he's consistently plagued with the fear that he could not ever be counted right before God. R.C. Sproul writes this about Luther. Two things separated Luther from the rest of men. First, he knew who God was. Second, he understood the demands of God's law as Luther knew the law inside and out. Luther's legal mind was haunted by the question, how can an unjust person survive in the presence of a just God? He was horrified. There's lots of literature written about Luther's psychological state. He was so horrified. And then he got relief. I mean, almost instant relief. Luther writes this relief came because he read the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.17, quote the prophet Habakkuk, and he re read the words that the righteous will live by faith. Luther's own words, he said this, Night and day I pondered, until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. And then I grasp that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and the only by the mercy of God that God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself reborn. What does it mean that God justifies us through faith? 
It means we come to a place of seeing the fullness of what God requires and admit we cannot meet those requirements. Calvin puts it like this about Habakkuk. He said, Habakkuk understands that faith strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God in order to find salvation in Him alone. So why does Paul quote Habakkuk? Because Paul sees in Habakkuk an example of the very faith required in the Gospel. Like Habakkuk was humbled that the nation could not clean up their own act, Paul was humbled that he, a Pharisee of Pharisees, could not clean up his own soul. Back to Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There are various theories why Paul would say, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. In fact, Richard and I last time talked about some of these together after he preached. And the more I look at this passage, I think it has to do with the nature of faith referenced in verse 17. For the faith referenced in verse 17, by its very nature, is humiliating. If Calvin is right, it leads us naked and needy to God. One would imagine that a man who is led by that faith, especially a man that was once considered the Pharisees of Pharisees, it would lead him to be ashamed. But Paul expressly says the opposite. He says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. In other words, I'm not ashamed of coming to the end of myself because it is that recognition that God used to bring me salvation. As Richard referenced last time in, in, in the statement in verse 16, in it the gospel, where it says, in it, and he's talking about the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He explained we can think of that as in the gospel we are counted as righteous. Well, how does that happen? How is it that the gospel counts us unrighteous people as righteous? As Richard explained, all happens through the sacrifice of of Jesus, the Son of God. So now, go back and recall the horror of Habakkuk. What was the horror of Habakkuk? It was the idea that God would use an unrighteous bunch of pagan Gentiles to punish the slightly more righteous children of God. And it took a drastic dose of faith, God-given faith for Habakkuk to understand that God might work in a manner like that. Well, the only thing, the only thing more audacious than the unrighteous being punished by the more unrighteous would be if the perfectly righteous were to be punished on behalf of the unrighteous. So if Habakkuk was horrified to see the Babylonians used by God to punish the wicked nation of Judah, how horrified 
Should we be that the perfect Son of God was punished in the place of each of us unrighteous creatures? And yet, this is the Gospel. This is the power for salvation. This is the truth in which we firmly hold our faith. In many ways, it's a story of which every one of us ought to be utterly ashamed. But like Paul, it is a truth for which we should be expressly unashamed. By no merit of my own, but only by the grace of God, through no effort of my own, but only through faith, I have been counted righteous before God. While, while our alternative endings for Hoosers and Rudy don't make great movies, they sure are a better explanation of our experience in the Gospel. When everything was on the line and we needed to rise and be victors in faith, we sat down and we let somebody else take our place. That's the story of every Christian. We are those who have faith. We are those who believe we are not able to fulfill God's demands, but that someone else greater than us has already done it. We live from the front end to the back end by faith. From faith to faith. The righteous will live by utterly dependent, humiliating, solid faith. May this lead to a sense of gratitude to God beyond our circumstances. May it engender in us trust and dependence on God to provide all things given His provision in Christ. May it lead to a genuine humility in how we view ourselves. May it lead us to a desire to share this good news to others, realizing that God can elicit faith. If God can elicit faith in us, He can elicit faith in anyone. Finally, may it lead us to hope in the great life that awaits us as we bank all of our hope on the mercies of God.